would like to imagine that if I'd stayed in education, I would have the career Dwayne Matthews has forged for himself as a chief innovation evangelist, uh, future of education strategist. Dwayne helps school boards, educators, and parents understand new and evolving themes in the 21st century, the future of work, and how to prepare children to thrive in a rapidly evolving digital information-driven world. Dwayne's got an incredible bio. He's the XPRIZE Connect Advisory Board member, which uh, is about creating a vision of an equitable and sustainable future for education and technology. It's really about helping young learners around the world reach their full potential. His career started in teaching and then hit the trail. Recipient of the uh, BAIE Trailblazer and Innovation Award presented by the CIO of uh, Bank of Montreal. He's been the education lead at the Faubert Applied Research Center, a nonprofit center dedicated to studying and furthering cognitive human performance. The conversation bridge technology with education, where it's going, and how COVID is stimulating more innovative approaches to education. It is such a pleasure and honor to have you on the show. What do you see emerging in education? And if you could touch on business education, it'd be great. Uh, because I know we've got things like Google giving access to education in completely different ways. What, what's going on in your world at the moment? In my world at the moment, I spend a lot of time looking at the cross-section or nexus between fourth industrial revolution technology and education itself. And the reason that I do that is because our formal education system is really designed to create contributing members of society. And, and so there's great benefit to that. It's why we sign in or subscribe to a social contract, because collectively, we're able to hopefully make the, the water rise for the vast majority of us. That hasn't been a perfect system. It's flawed with all kinds of inequities, but it was based on a particular paradigm of economy that we had, which is really like a factory style economy. So now we have a, a huge shift, a digital transformation of economy and work. And my concern is that the formal education system has not adjusted for that huge shift. And for good reason. It hasn't done so because the, the last paradigm has been slow moving and pretty stable for the last 150 to 200 years. This particular paradigm is moving at an exponential rate and we're already past an inflection point. It's very difficult for people to process exponential things in front of them because they're accustomed to processing things in a linear fashion. And that becomes extremely challenging. And I'll give one short example. The, the first example would be when I was in high school, I had to learn about Robert Mugabe, the former president of Zimbabwe, tyrant to many. And so for me to do that, what did I have to do? My neighbor actually had the encyclopedias because I remember those kits would be like $5,000. I had like A to D. I would have to go over to my neighbor. There'd be a small bit of writing. It wouldn't be enough. I would have to get onto a bus, go down to the library, get to the library, speak to the librarian, go through the Dewey Decimal System, the library, and hopefully knew who I was talking about. She or he would get me to those books. If the books weren't there, they would tell me, get back in line and come back in the next 10 days. All in all, the whole process would take me about 20 days. Today, my son just has to speak it into a speaker and it'll send it into all his devices, millions and millions of videos, hundreds of thousands of articles in seconds. What took me 20 days takes him a few seconds. That seems simple, but it's profound because it's exponential. Very profound impacts on education and work and the economy in general. 
That's a wonderful example of the shift. And it's interesting because I'm seeing the back end of curriculum not really adapt to, not really matching up with the kind of world we're living in. How can tech accelerate the adaptive ability in education? I think the first thing that people need to think about is the fact that education has always been about technology. Always. 200 years ago, education was about technology. It's not until you really pay attention that you realize that's true. Behind you, there's a stack of books, right? That's 600-year-old technology, cutting-edge technology. A Gutenberg printing press was invented. It took 150 years between the printing press and the Bible. Why is that important? That's important because the people that created the Gutenberg printing press never saw what a printed book looked like at scale. So it made sense to always look backwards to think about how do I conduct myself going forwards? So I look for patterns going backwards, and I assume that everything is going to be pretty much stable and pretty much the same with small incremental changes. We created a strategy called school around a technology called the printed book. We surrounded it with another piece of technology that was invented in 1662, the pencil, and the supporting technologies of a blackboard or a green board. We put kids into one room and then we scaled that, right? We took the one room schoolhouse and we scaled it until we had a school that maybe had 1,500 students. And that has allowed us to do really amazing things. Before that, 98% of us were farmers and only 2% of us did anything that was intellectual. Pretty much nobody could read just about 100 years ago. But here we are where we have 90 to 95% literacy rates in most parts of the world most people would understand that a school is not a school if there are no books in there and there's no access to pencils in there. So we scale formal school. The challenge with that is the optimal of school. If you think that school is optimally to create post-secondary entrance, is about 35%. Most places on the world, with the exception of maybe Ontario that sits at about 69% based on immigration and a host of other factors. But most places in the world, it's relatively about 35%. Now we realize that the economy is shifting. We realize that we need more people to enter into that 35%. We need a a greater percentage of people because we need the actual economy to move up and rise above. If not, the, the economy gets disconnected from the actual human being on the street, which we're starting to see, right? So the the stock market takes off this way, but salaries stay this way. And if you're not necessarily into the stock market and the real estate market, you start to feel that there's a huge shift. You're in Vancouver, I'm in Toronto. The average rent in an inner city bad neighborhood is about $2,300 a month. The person that's living there is making $15 to $20 an hour. Things are starting to disconnect. We really have to reconnect those or else we find that there's there's lots of discord and pieces of society start to to come apart. I think technology, digital technology, has a, has a, a great equalizer. Because what it does is it allows you to get into permissionless leverage, which means you can leverage at scale. You can learn at scale. You can leverage at scale so long as you have connectivity and you have a device to access. And so that's a big part of the problem that we need to solve is is connectivity and devices, which I think will start to solve itself in the next 12 to 24 months. In Canada or North America, are you thinking about or are you thinking globally? I'm thinking globally. There are two big projects. The one that I'm thinking of is Starlink by Elon Musk. He's putting up the largest constellation of satellites that will give internet connectivity to an additional 5 billion people 
over the next three years. Why is that significant? Because right now we only have about 3.5 to 4 billion people that are connected. It took us 20 years to do that. There are a number of projects that will bring 5 billion in the next two to three years, which is exponentially faster. If you have that many people with potential connectivity, there's going to be a, a huge clamor, not just to get them devices, but to get them connected. My brain's just exploding because we could take this a bunch of different directions, but one of them has to do with socioeconomic access to education and not just that, but also cultural. So having traveled through Africa where you've got multiple languages in a very small geographic area, access is one aspect of it. There's the capacity to pick up the tech and work with it. Generally, I found that those remote communities pick up the technology faster in in many instances than you would find in rural Canada or rural United States where there's other factors, not even just rural, but low socioeconomic urban. What are you seeing there? What are the possibilities? What are the potentialities for those kids in those environments to really just become the entrepreneur of today and just bypass a whole bunch of other steps that we've been sticking in front of them as limitations? One of the things that you find if you have an incumbent structure, whatever that structure is, if that structure is a school, if it's a large company, if it's Bell and Rogers, any kind of incumbent structure anywhere strives for stability. To have stability, it means that if anything is going to change, it must do so incrementally and it must do so slowly. By definition, it's not necessarily innovative. It, it, it strives for status quo, which makes sense. It makes a ton of sense because you can't wake up every day feeling completely different. You have to have some combination of a memory of who you are to function really well. But there are those moments when you have an inflection point and you have to, you have to change. You have to evolve really quickly. And this is one of those moments. What you'll find is emerging countries do not have the same emotional legacy and stability that we've been privileged enough to experience. And that's an opportunity for them to leapfrog many of the steps that we keep in place that we don't need. We have a lot of steps that we keep in place that we don't actually need. We know we don't need them but we still hold on to them because it's what we've always done. But if, if you go to many of the countries in Africa, you'll notice that there are a lot of people that have smartphones, like a lot. And it starts to boggle the mind because you start to think, how do you have a smartphone? My iPhone is, is plus a thousand bucks and an Android is plus a thousand bucks. I don't understand. You will see poor kids in many countries with smartphones. With those smartphones, they get very creative in terms of how they move about stored value like money. If you go to certain places in Asia, all the money moves across WeChat. There's no intermediary. There's a huge move towards digital. There's a a city that's being built in Senegal by a musician. The whole city is supposed to be built on the premise of digital stored value moving back and forth across mobile devices. We don't have a project like that in North America, which is fascinating. Like We're having a conversation in North America about, well, do we have digital technology in our school or not? Do we think it's a good thing or not? Meanwhile, in you know Rwanda, some schools have one-to-one laptops and robotics all the way through 450 students. I don't know any school that goes from K to 12, any three schools that line up from K to 12 that have that kind of connectivity in Toronto, which is supposed to be one of the most innovative cities on the planet. You realize that really creates a David and Goliath situation. One of the trends that I think you'll start to see 
is innovations and models coming from the emerging world. A lot of times we try to solve problems by thinking we have the solution and we need to go over there and fix. And we get over there and we realize that's actually a really good solution. I wonder if it could work over here. You're going to see that more and more. Once upon a time, they call that reverse innovation. I don't know if I love that term, but you're going to start seeing a crossing of ideas that are a lot more respectful, a lot less paternalistic in terms of, I'd like to know how was it that a school in Rwanda got all 450 students on laptops and connectivity with robots and we're unable to do it in Toronto. I'd love to know that. So how did that happen? And even smartphones. We've got, you know, headsets for, for VR for coming up. I I can imagine in Africa, knowing how resourceful they are, that those kids would have gone into the discarded cell phone pile, the electronic waste that, that we ship out and send off to other countries and hack them together, hack the phone together. I can imagine that happening because there's that level of creative resource. If you don't have it and you need it, you create something. It's it's very uh, straightforward. And, and because we're not putting a whole bunch of mind traps between the idea and the action, uh, they just do it. it. It's just, I think it's brilliant. Here's, here's another interesting point. Remember I said there were about 3 billion people connected. In 2019, there were 2 billion connected devices sold. Uh, In 2018, there are approximately 2 billion connected devices sold. In 2020, there's a little bit more than 2 billion connected devices. That's 6 billion devices. There's only 3 billion of us on the internet. So that means that a perfectly good phone, your iPhone 8, has to go somewhere. There was a project that was done by the folks at XPRIZE, and the project was to create software that you could take into a rural country in Africa. And I forget which of the 54 countries it was specifically. This challenge was sponsored by Elon Musk. It was a $15 million challenge. And they had to basically take a tablet, leave it in the village. The software would have to be so intuitive that a child could pick it up right away and know exactly what to do with this device, having never seen the device before. One of the stories was really interesting because the devices weren't connected to the net. One of the the students realized that the Europeans were somehow connecting to something else and through observation took apart this tablet and figured out how to connect it to the internet and then started teaching the other kids how to do it with theirs. Then they went and figured out YouTube and started to figure out, okay, how could we actually create videos and start teaching each other? There's a great experiment that was done by a gentleman by the name of Sugata Mitra in India, which is very similar, where he just gave a device that was connected, left the question, and the kids self-assembled into small schools and got into very complex levels of knowledge in a month on their own with no adult. So you realize that we have an idea. Our idea here, if you ask most adults, who's the smartest person in the room, they'll say the teacher. My parents taught me, always listen to the teacher. But the teacher can't be the smartest person in the room if information's exponential. It's not a slight on the teacher. It just can't be done. I'm so excited about that possibility because it changes the role completely and allows these kids who have incredible creative potential to just let it go and release it and, and channel it. And the teacher, if there is one, must raise their level of skill 
from simple strategy into something that's far more adaptive, far more responsive to students. I think there's a, a better chance of some kind of empathic relationship between student and teacher in that world coming forward. You know, I agree. I've had lots of conversations with people say, we need something that's completely student-centric. I usually use the word co-create. The risk of that is that when we speak of privilege, a lot of times the concept of privilege gets thrown around as white privilege. But I think another kind of privilege that we need to take into consideration is geographic and socioeconomic privilege. Letting kids do anything that they want, complete passion, has a risk to it. And the risk is that it's disconnected from economy. And that's because everyone's comfortable. I'll give you an example. My son has an iPhone. So he's a lot less compelled to work because if he's working at $15 an hour and he has to save a thousand bucks, it's going to seem like a really long time for him to get to the phone. And by the time he gets to the phone, his phone's probably too old. This disconnection makes it very difficult for him to understand the type of effort that's needed. The adversity has to be baked in. When I was young, the adversity may not have been baked in. I actually had to go against really harsh adversity growing up in the Caribbean to find any kind of success and stumble upon a lot of luck while I was doing it. We have to be mindful that our, our conversations are really based on, on geographic privilege. I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Most people in big cities in Vancouver and Toronto, I would say, have a toilet. And in that toilet is six liters of clean drinking water. You flush it at least three, four times a day without giving any thought to it. If I go four hours north, five hours north of Toronto, I run into communities that don't have clean drinking water. When I lived in Peru, I can go into the desert and find that they don't even have toilets because the idea of flushing six liters of clean drinking water seems ridiculous. When we think about that, we think about that in a, a number of different ways. And it, we really have to take pause and back up and think, okay, is there a blind spot to our desire for self-actualization that does not connect to how we got here in the first place? It, it's really important that we address that blind spot by having a lot of diverse perspectives to remind us. It's really important or, or else um, we'll realize that, it, that our privilege actually turns out to be a weakness, which is an interesting concept. All my programs talk about diversity as being critical for understanding and working with complexity, especially on the decision-making level, because if you make the assumption that your point of view is the only one in town, you're going to get it wrong. You just don't have any kind of a durable solution coming out of that approach. So I completely agree, and I'm delighted to hear what you're saying. Can we bridge it now over into business education? I've done a number of interviews on this podcast, but mostly my previous podcast with educators and we tried very much, I think it was about 2015, to develop a, an innovative dialogue inside universities, but ran smack into the systemic wall of this is the summer, you can't reach anybody. There's just these constraints that are built into the system. And, and for the most part, people are pretty unaware 
like I would say 80% are unaware of the fact that they're being driven by the system versus being able to innovate around it. We do have, obviously, the Global Responsible Leader Initiative, the GRLI.org. That's 50 business schools doing some cool stuff. But for the most part, we just don't have that level of adaptability we need in the business education world. What do you see going on there? I I think back to the 600-year-old technology. It's pretty stable. If you can imagine a a university business looking backwards, you've developed a course 30 years ago that is increasing in price without changing. It leaves little incentive. When I went to school, a course might have been 800 bucks. It's probably double that, triple that, depending on the universities that you're going to. It's very hard to make a change when you're going to disrupt or cannibalize yourself especially when you look around, you're like, it's pretty good, right? If I'm a tenured professor, I'm making $200,000 a year forever. Maybe I have to write a couple of books. It's going to be very difficult to, to tell me that system that you have that has been working really well for you in the latter years of your career, I want you to try something completely different. It's going to make you extremely uncomfortable. And it probably could destroy everything that you've built. Are you in? Most people will say no. This is mapped out really well by the late Clayton Christensen, where he talks about disruptive theory. I think what you'll start to find happening, and you alluded to it at the beginning, I don't know if we started taping it yet, is that the world of business is going to look around and say, we're not getting what we want. And there's a scramble to get what we want. Because if we're creating all this new innovation, then there are going to be all these new positions that nobody's trained for. There's going to be a few winners in that kind of environment. Google came out at the middle of last year and said, hey, we, we have a $300 course that's six months that leads into an entry-level job at $92,000 US, and you can work from anywhere in the world. What does that mean? That means that your student in Vancouver is competing with a student in Boston, is competing with a student in Rwanda, is competing with a student in South Africa, is competing with a student in Bangkok. You're competing with anybody. I have cousins in Trinidad that are like, man, if I made $92,000 US, multiply that by six, and I'm living in my mom's basement, I'm not even thinking about buying a house. That's a rich person. Imagine the motivation versus somebody saying, I don't know. And I I don't know if I like tech, if I like coding. It's very different. What you'll find happening is you will see a lot of corporations, the smart ones, will start to realize that their training program for training employees will extend. And the first stop will be universities. And they'll realize the very same way that this is a bit too slow. And they'll move around the universities and become the learning centers themselves. Google has done this. Apple has a bunch of things. Disney has just opened out with something. You'll find a lot of the Ernst and Youngs and Deloitte's are all quietly building these, these huge learning facilities. Uh, and that's a very big part because they have to defend human capital. Human capital is going to be the next big resource. We're all going to have to become like Singapore. Singapore is a great example. In 1965, it it, it was a backwater. Today, it has one of the highest standards of living, and it has no resources. It's only resources, human capital. They have thrown like 50% of their effort, personal income, GDP, into education, 
And they have come up as a huge educational powerhouse in Singapore. They're, they're one of the most innovative places on the planet. There's a huge driver to say we started with nothing, no oil, no resources, no wood, no oceans, no deep water harbors. We're now number one in the world in terms of standard of living. It's probably one of the cleanest, safest places in the world to live. You need to have a real drive towards learning all the time. I think we're going to find that we run into something like that because a lot of our comforts will get you know wiped off the map. There, there are parts of Canada in the middle in, in Calgary, they're like, hey, we have this great industry. And all of a sudden, realize that there's a huge vulnerability and the industry's turned off for three years. People are like, it's coming back. Is it coming back? In Ontario, there's a lot of people in banking and then there's service. And the service is all primarily based on a, a lot of companies that aren't Canadian. There are challenges to all these things. We're really going to have to become a learning type society because there are lots of barriers that were existing previously that, that just aren't there anymore. The, the friction between capital and geography has been reduced. You're hitting on something here that is near and dear to my heart, and that is the business of adapting with the conditions that we're in so that we can tackle the bigger issues because we've been suppressing human potential for a considerable length of time. And at some stage you just reach, okay, we can't do that anymore. We can't afford to do that anymore. So the Calgary example, you know, Alberta is my home province, and it's been painful to watch that idea that we can shape the world to fit our expectations that it's all going to come back. No, it won't. The signals have been on the wall for, I don't know, 20, 30 years easily. And so there's been an interruption that says we can use this to adapt how we think, to learn. Otherwise, the, the position is victim. I'm going to be a victim of my own thinking. The blaming will go to the economy. It will go to just about everything. But my responsibility for learning in the moment and taking advantage of this to really up the level of my own thinking I'm going to take two questions and put them together. One is, how do we get out of our own way? And the other one is, what role can VR play in doing that? I just wanted to address one thing before I move on to those two. Calgary and Alberta is really interesting because if we were to pare down into Canada, Canada is ranked maybe in the top 10 of education outcomes in the world, according to PISA. If we really pared down, we would find that Alberta is probably one of the biggest drivers of that. One of the best universities on an absolutely great education system. It was really well connected to the resource industry. They pumped out tons of engineers and lots of software folks that end up working in Google, but they still ran into this problem. The canary in the coal mine with you could be doing amazing things for an education system that's built on 2011 backwards because of the speed of the reality of shifting economies, it could really catch you off guard and be quite devastating. I've spoke to a lot of people in Calgary that were VPs at large oil companies that have said, hey, I haven't been paid a salary in like four years. The amount of people that I knew that were VPs or C-suites that are now consultants trying to figure out how do we create something else. And so that leads into the other thing. How do we get out of our own way? It was a great book by Ray Dalio, the billionaire investor. And he talks about radical open-mindedness and, and finding and believing in credible, believable people that disagree with you. One of the biggest things that we need to do is, is we need to start having those conversations and disagreeing with the people that are coming with the ideas, but being really open to what they're saying to say, okay, what do we do? The, the other thing that I think we need to do is... We need to get back in terms of education. We need to get back in terms of 
what is it exactly that we do? Most educators, if I asked them, I said, what do you do? They say, I, I teach kids how to learn. No, you don't. That's not what you do. I could leave my three-year-old daughter with about five chosen apps, and I'm pretty certain she could take herself to grade three on her own without any intervention, just playing with her toys and her apps. She'd probably do it on her own. We're developing citizens to be contributing members to the greater good. The goal is to make that greater good meet as much financial prosperity as humanly possible for everybody else, because then that makes it a much more enjoyable place for us to live in collectively. We need to revisit that. And once we revisit that, we need to say, what does 2030 look like? Like really, what is it? So most educators that I've spoken to say, we don't know what it's going to look like. I go, that may be true, but we do have some clues and we should zone in on those clues. We understand that there's going to be a doubling of computer processing power and there's about seven technologies around that will hit inflection points. So we could at least start to think about what might those inflection points do and what kind of things may be created from there. If it were up to me, I would create a, a blue team and a red team. And I would have a team that works on incremental. And I would have another team that is constantly thinking about really crazy stuff that may come up, go out and say, you know, to parents, hey, are you, are you interested in, in trying this crazy stuff that may come up because it may find a lot of parents that are because the last system doesn't work for them. I, I think mixed reality is going to be the next big thing because it expands. I mean, you've probably tried on a VR headset. I, I put on Oculus 2 in a big room and was amazed as to how many things I can bend physics on and, and figure out. I, I did a, a project at the Tomorrow Now Learning Lab with my, my son. We did a project with a, a couple of students out in Calgary and, and a couple of students in public school and a couple of schools in a private school in another place. What we looked at is their ability to collaborate together in that space, but to bend physics to understand things. So we were really focused on the Mars rover. The project was about how do we redesign the Mars rover beyond perseverance. We look at what does curiosity look like was you're able to go into rooms and grab it and turn it around and spin it and look on the other side and then pull up a video and say, let me see, what is this over here? Things you just can't do in a book. They just need to create questions. So we literally made them create 20 questions of their own and just try and figure out, come back and tell me when you figured those out. We gave them a, a set of mental frameworks and tools I say, you decide which decision-making tool is going to be the best in the situation. You pull that decision-making tool. So let's say you're using design thinking out of Stanford and you go through the design thinking process. What they came up with was extraordinary. Like they were able to go into VR. They were able to use it, manipulate it. They're able to pull up all these different access points and then use a video game off of their PlayStation to go out and recreate at least four or five different form factors and iterations of this Mars rover over the course of three weeks and then write a five-paragraph essay about six pages long on the experience. My son hates writing. So to see that, and now he's super interested. Oh, look, they're actually landing it. And oh, I know what that is. The key is really to push for that curiosity and separate curiosity from essential learning and make sure that you have an eye on co-creating the economy. And I go, doing those three things, we'll find our way out of this. But if we pretend that we're still the smartest person in the room and all of the content. Let me make one more point. When the books were the number one technology, let me back up even further. There's a great story of a, a king from Africa in Mali a long time ago. His name was Mansa Musa. And, and technically he may be the richest person to ever have lived. And what was interesting was he was Muslim. 
And so he had to take a journey from Mali to Mecca because as a devout Muslim, this is what he needed to do. To go, he had to take all of his money with him. But all of his money was gold, bars. So he literally had to go with hundreds of soldiers and a caravan. And everywhere he went, he had to move with all this money. Today, Elon Musk doesn't walk around with a procession of soldiers and gold bars. He just has maybe a black card. So it's, it's reduced. When we were learning, we had 600-year-old technology called a book. You might have read hundreds of books, but you can't walk with them all. So you have to memorize at least 25% of them for people to have you credible. But our, our kids don't have to do that, do they? They have 14 billion transistors on a single chip inside of a device. I could take every single book ever created, I could put it in there and have massive amounts of space. And I can have those books read to me while I'm washing the dishes. It's, it's extraordinary. You add in VR, and now I can make all kinds of mental maps immediately that I can remember and visualize. It's absolutely extraordinary. Once we look at that, we realize that the technology that has gotten us this far has now expanded in a number of different ways. I think we'll start to, to see possibilities to you know, see what's coming next. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm so delighted to hear this. Now, talk to about Tomorrow Now. What we do at Tomorrow Now is we essentially look at merging those exponential technologies with learning. And a lot of people think that we're really big technology focus. And Dwayne, you're the technology guy. I'm actually not the technology guy. The, the kids are usually the technology guys and are a lot more savvy than I am. But what we really look at is what kind of mental frameworks do we need? How do we identify lots of ideas? How do we identify what we want to do? And then how do we do what, what we call technology orchestration to go find the tools to help us do what we want to do? We want to teach kids to learn how to learn how to be calm, to make really good decisions, and then to go find the innovative tools and techniques that they need to help them get done what they need to get done. Essentially, we separate learning into two pieces. We take out essential content, so they're going to need to learn to read because they need to have reading to help them. They're going to need basic math because they, they need that. They need, they're going to need to speak. They're going to need to be able to write. But in terms of content, what they need to be able to do is to think about that content specifically because looking at content across one linear narrative, we realize it, it leaves us missing a lot. Somebody asked me, Dwayne, do you think that there's systemic racism in, in Canada? I said, well, first off, we, we have to think about well, what do you mean? When you ask me about systemic racism, are we talking about the same thing? I go, let's put the racism aside. We have some thoughts about that, but let's think about systemic, right? So if we think about systemic, we can say, okay, I need to be able to see the framework of it. So the framework is legal, it's uh, structural, it's internalized, and it's interpersonal. So most people, when they think about racism, they think about interpersonal. So it's easy for anybody to say, well, I've never said anything racist about a person. I have a couple of friends that are Asian and couple of friends that are indigenous. So I think I'm good that my husband is, is black. So I, I think I'm fine, but that's interpersonal, but not taking into consideration structural, not taking into consideration institutional, so legal norms and that sort of stuff. So then I say to somebody, I said, okay, what's the difference between a province and territory, right? How is that connected to the fact that many people in first nation communities up North don't have clean drinking water? How is it connected to the fact that many First Nations in those communities underperform in post-secondary education? 
How is that connected to the dynamic that you feel when you look on the news and you see there's a blockade somewhere because someone in a First Nation community or an Indigenous community felt offended by somebody going in to extract resources from a territory? Once you look at the whole picture, it's very different because it's not personal as a new Canadian. I may not understand that. But if I look at the system, then I can see the system clearly and I can say, okay, based on the structure of the system, I can see that if I jig this a little bit and if I shift that a little bit, the outcome that we want is going to be different. And we don't have to get into the interpersonal. We don't have to get into an ad hominem argument that makes me feel like I'm being attacked and I'm a horrible person. Because that's really what people have a challenge with. I give that example, not just to talk about systemic racism, but systemic anything. So any kind of system, we're going to be able to see that. So when we look at school, we'll see laws, rules, we'll see structure, we'll see interpersonal, and we'll see internalization. We see it all there. How do you internalize if you're a good student or not? If you don't have the A pluses, what does that make you? A bad student. So your intrinsic value is connected to this report card. Between K to six, you don't even know how you get an A. You think maybe it's because the teacher likes me, the teacher doesn't like me. That's terrible if only 35% of the class can get there. So once we start looking at these things, then we're able to think about, okay, this is not a good thing or a bad thing. This is about the outcome that we want. Do we have the outcome that we want? And if we don't have the outcome that we want, how do we look at a system? How do we use thinking frameworks? How do we go get the technology and the tools that we want to create the kinds of experiments that we need to figure it out? And that's really what Tomorrow Now Learning Lab is about. That's flat out brilliant. I'm extremely excited by that. Anything else you'd like to add before we close off? Are there any other questions that, that oh, you'd sure. like to ask of me? We could keep going. We're just tickling the surface here. There's so much potential in our conversations because the question is, when you're sitting in a pandemic disruption, which is of a highly systemic nature. In other words, it breaks everything and tests it and says, okay, how much resilience do we have in our supply chain? How much resilience do we have in our thinking? What's our capability to learn from this and expand and grow and develop our potential? All of these things that feed into mental health or business innovation or whatever it is. This is to me the the crucible for that adaptive capability. We're sitting on it. And the question is, what do we do with it? We can just keep poking these different areas. I really appreciate the, the depth of your capacity to remember specific details far exceeds mine. I read dynamics, not so much details. And I'm just blown away by your ability just to pull these stories together and bring it into reality for listeners today. So thank you very much. I, I appreciate that because my, my wife says that I, I lack all the details in the world. And there, there are four people in my house and I'm, I'm convinced that I may be the one with the least intelligence. So I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Dwayne, for more information, people go to DwayneMatthews.com. If, if you want to find out more about me and what I'm doing. I am Dwayne Matthews is my, my Instagram handle. DwayneMatthews.life is my website. www.tomorrownowlearninglab.com is about the learning lab. And the best place to, to find me and to get a sense of what I'm thinking, what I'm doing is to connect with me on LinkedIn. Google search me on LinkedIn, connect with me there. And that's probably the place where if I'm on anything social that I'm, I'm going to spend at least 30 minutes a day reflecting on something there. Dwayne Matthews has given us a lot to think about in this conversation. I'm particularly excited because with a pandemic interrupting all the patterns that we've been routinely driven by, 
we have a chance to co-create and co-design much better ways of getting things done in the education space, practically in, in, in all spaces. I encourage you to also reference the conversation that I had with Ksenia Benefand about the different archetypes that you use to approach change, see which one you fit into, see which one you would prefer to fit into, and then use that to select your response going forward in this very dynamic and exciting time. My name is Donna Jones. I work to guide decision makers at all levels in organizations, but particularly at the senior and strategic levels on how to transform successfully in the context of fast change and very complex environments, how to use the conflicts that emerge to come at things very differently. Contact me on LinkedIn at D-A-W-N-A-H Jones, on Twitter at E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones, or you can always go to the website, which is from insight2action.com.